Support for the trend comes from members of the local programming fund. I'm Micah Schweitzer. It took a while, but it seems like spring has finally sprung, which has many of us out in the yard, perhaps planting some new shrubs or flowers. But before you grab that shovel, take a listen to today's show. We'll discuss how to incorporate native plants in your landscaping. We're joined by Mike McGarra from Keep Evansville Beautiful. Welcome to The Trend. Thank you. And also Paul Bausman from Mesker Park Zoo and Botanic Garden. Hi, Paul. Hi, Micah. And, of course, you're both uh, master gardeners, and you're also members of the Indiana Native Plant and Wildflower Society, so uh, you're wearing a variety of hats. But you're here because you're both involved with the Gateway Project, which is uh, involved with uh, putting what, 8,500 plants uh, on the appro- the northern approach to Evansville on uh, Highway 41? That's right. Uh, we'll be planting seven varieties of wildflower and three species of, species of grasses in that area. And uh, they're all native plants. They are. They are. Uh, we have uh, an assortment of uh, forbs like uh, black-eyed Susan, uh, purple coneflower, spiderwort, and then uh, prairie grasses uh, like uh, prairie drop seed and little blue stem. And uh, these plants will be very adaptable to our local conditions because this is where they're from. So, Mike McGarrett, why the decision to uh, go with native plants? A couple reasons. One is the uh, sustainability uh, as well as the, uh, the low maintenance as we go forward. Uh, that plus we we all want to encourage the use of uh, native plants in uh, home landscaping throughout the area and this is a very very good way to showcase this okay because thousands of people drive by and wonder hey what's that pretty flower is that that the idea sort of a a giant billboard for plants somewhat uh basically we're wanting to provide uh uh, color uh, in in somewhat of a, a non-random fashion, uh, and, and by that I mean we're actually uh, designing this landscape where instead of broadcasting the flowers, we're actually going to be planting them, and Paul can elaborate on that because he's basically done a lot of the design work, but we'll be putting these plants in in, in an organized fashion. Uh, there'll be various colors, various bloom times, and so forth. And, um, you know, they're, they're well-suited for our climate, well-suited for our soils, and uh, the good news is, as we move forward, uh, once we get them established, uh, they won't be no maintenance, but they'll be very low maintenance. And, Paula, I'll ask you about that design that Mike brought up, but, but let's first, just to get a definition out there, ask, what is a native plant? Well, a native plant is a plant that occurs in a specific uh, geographical area or or uh, ecological area, uh, certain types of habitats. Uh, so we have different woodland habitats, uh, grassland habitats in the Midwest, and uh, the plants that come from those areas are considered to be native. Now, some plants have been here for a long time. Non-natives have been here for a long time, brought over from Europe or for ha- perhaps from Asia. Is there a point at which they reach native status, or are they always considered non-native? Well, there's uh, people have been moving plants since there have people started gardening, and um, here in this area, people or European settlers, of course, introduced plants. And when those plants become established in natural areas, we refer to that as naturalized instead of native. They've been brought in and they've established themselves. And uh, so that's the primary difference. They weren't here at the beginning, but uh, now they have become established. Some of these um, invasive or plants can be invasive and actually change the character of our natural areas by suppressing our native plant species. So those are the bad ones. That's right. We call those exotic invasives, and uh, they can wreak 
havoc in our natural ecosystems by reducing diversity and just altering the character of the land. But they're very common, aren't they? They are. Some of our most common landscape plants are shown to be invasive and uh, are still widely planted. Plants like uh, calorie pear, often uh, sold under the name Bradford pear or the cultivar Bradford pear. Um, the seedlings of these this tree can be spread by birds and uh, really uh, invade woodlands and displace our native trees. Bradford pear, I mean, you know, I don't know a ton about plants and gardening, but I know what that is. It's, it's a very common one. Uh, how do you get providers and distributors to change what they're offering because you can go out to a garden center and uh, probably without much trouble find a bad Bradford pear and it's a very pretty tree and you might sure. think well that'll look nice in my yard yeah I think that that's a good point because what happens a lot of these plants have been used for a long time they're well established in in the landscape schemes and so forth and really uh, landscapers tend to stock what they think their their clientele want to use and the best way is is uh, is is basically to uh, kind of do a little uh, investigation on your own, decide uh, what 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 you'd like to go with in terms of native plants. There always are substitutes, and Paul Paul could certainly elaborate on that. But there are always substitutes to some of these things that are much better suited. They're they're not invasive. Uh, Bradford pear is beautiful. It's fragrant, but there's a lot of other issues with it. Uh, it, it. It's it's become invasive. It's also a plant that, after a period of time, doesn't really hold up well to wind and so forth. Uh, the big thing is um, when you are planning your landscape, talk natives and see what alternatives are available because there are a lot of very nice alternatives. And what you'll find out is uh, you'll be very successful with natives uh, uh, as well as everything else. Doesn't that get into a vicious cycle where the, the stores provide what they think customers want and then customers buy, buy what the stores provide and so they reinforce each other? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, Mike hit upon it, educating the public about which plants are best adapted to your landscapes and how you can benefit from using native plants uh, will help create the demand for native plants in our nurseries. So some of us need to take that extra step, do a little research, and, and start that ball rolling. Absolutely, and that's why places like uh, Mesker Park Zoo and Botanic Garden are there with collections of native plants, and the Indiana Wild uh, Native Plant and Wildflower Society is a wonderful resource to find out which plants uh, will work in your landscape and which ones you should avoid. You even have a garden uh, at Mesker Park Zoo that, that has uh, native plants in it and, and, and even a, uh, I guess, a plant this, not that section? Yes, we have examples of shrubs that will replace common invasive species uh, in the landscape. And uh, we have, it's in our family garden, which is a demonstration garden at the zoo, which is a cooperation or a cooperative project between us and the master gardeners. Uh, but yes, we do. And that, that way we can show our visitors uh, and give them ideas for what they can use in their own landscapes. Mm -hmm. see a lot of burning bush, for instance. I guess that's an invasive? Burning bush is showing up to be more invasive in our woodlands. It leaves out quite early and can suppress um, mm -hmm. native wildflowers, so it's one that you should avoid. Um, we recommend sweet spire instead, which has beautiful fall color but is native to this area. Mm -hmm. So you get kind of the similar effect of what you'd get from the burning bush with the pretty red leaves in the fall, but you're not causing the problem. Absolutely. Right. right. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I want to ask you, Paul, about the uh, the design of this uh, approach on 41 uh, leading into Evansville on the north side. Um, and, and Mike McGarry was saying that you have a very specific plan to this, that you're not doing broadcast spreading of seeds. That's right. We chose uh, with this planting, it's about 270 feet long and 25 feet wide. We chose to plant the uh, plants in drifts. So it'll look naturalistic, but the plants are grouped together in mass so that they'll have more visual impact. So you'll see one variety and it will make a colorful um, drift across the landscape. We're avoiding, you know, uh, rigid geometric design, but going with a very natural look, but it will be organized Mm -hmm. as well. And that'll help with the maintenance. And and Mike, doesn't that go a bit against a, a common conception about native plantings being kind of the wild look? That's what we're trying to dispel because a lot of people, I think, when you think natives, I mean, initially it's like the grass, the grasslands, the plains, those kinds of things are, or as you said, the wild look, or it's uh, it's really not structured and so forth, and it's just rough looking, and and that that doesn't have to be the case at all because as, as you said, with some planning and some selection, uh, you can end up with a very very attractive uh, home landscape. Uh, anything else. And something else uh, that we're trying to work, the the other thing to mention, and and, uh, maybe we'll get to it later, but we're working with the uh, state of Indiana, the uh, Indiana Department of Transportation, because they have a program called the Hoosier uh, um, uh, Highway uh, uh, Program for uh, wildfire plantings. And what they've done in in the northern state, uh, part of Indiana, Indiana, is broadcast seeds and so forth. And we've kind of worked with them. They've been a partner with us. Uh, it's basically been uh, Paul with the Mesker Park Zoo. It's been uh, Indiana Department of Transportation. It's been uh, Native Plant folks. It's been uh, a number of people, plus some of uh, a lot of community volunteers, master gardeners, um, uh, master naturalists, and basically, we've talked and been working with the state of Indiana, and and we've worked with their folks. And it's like, what have you used? What do you recommend? And it's been kind of a collaboration. Uh, we've talked to them about what we prefer, what we want to use. And they've come back with some some things that they they feel we should use because of their experience. But it's kind of been, a, I think, a, a, a cooperation uh, in that what we've ended up with is a little bit of each. And I think what we'll find out is, uh, you know, our success is, is going to be just a really, really, uh, it's going to be a showcase. And I think the, the other thing, this is one of the first times this has been done this far south in the state of Indiana. So it's we're all excited about this. Native plants are trending. We'll have more after a break. <coughs> You're listening to The Trend. Support for WNIN comes from Evansville Day School, offering summer courses for middle and upper school students as part of the school's summer academy program. The courses, SAT review, driver's training, French, Spanish, and math skills, are open to local, middle, and upper school students. More information through Krista Meyer, Program Manager, at 812-476-3039 or evansvilledayschool.org. And from Morton Solar, a renewable energy solution provider for residential, commercial, governmental, and utility clients wanting to reduce electricity bills and lessen the carbon footprint. Located in Evansville, Indiana, Morton Solar provides consultation, engineering and design, and installation for projects throughout the tri-state area. Information on Facebook or at 812-402-0900. This is The Trend. I'm Micah Schweitzer. We're discussing native plants with Mike McGarra from Keep Evansville Beautiful and Paul Bousman from Mesker Park Zoo and Botanic Gardens. And, you know, this is all well and good if uh, 
I'm going out to buy a plant for my yard, uh, and I say I'm going to go with a native instead of an invasive or a non-native, but what if I already have a Bradford pear in my yard or a burning bush in my yard? What, what do you recommend? Do I tear it out? Well, that uh, obviously that's your choice, and it depends on what that plant is doing for you in the landscape right now. Obviously, if it's providing shade that you need, you might consider planting another tree and let it grow before you decide to move your uh, Bradford pear. So gardens are a work in progress, so I would encourage folks to uh, plan ahead and think of their garden as a long-term project uh, and think about phasing out uh, exotic ornamentals in favor of natives where they might might cause problems. What do you mean where they might cause problems? Well, certainly not all ornamental plants from other countries are a problem. Uh, we have a lot of ornamentals that people have used that don't create problems. And um, of course, you, you don't necessarily need to eliminate those from your landscape. The uh, benefit is uh, to using natives, though, is that you're supporting local wildlife. And a lot of the ornamentals from other countries don't support our local wildlife the way natives do. So the native draws a certain type of bug to it, which then draws a certain type of exactly. bird to it. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's the thing that came to mind. Uh, what happens is uh, insects, which, of course, the birds feed on, they may or may not feed on certain certain uh, invasive plants, whereas the natives, they, they do. And and not only does the native plant support uh, the insect, the uh, the insect doesn't destroy the plant. Uh, it's kind of a, a nice relationship, and then and uh, that that sort of thing. And then birds and other things can feed on the insects. So it's kind of a, a you know a, just a cooperative, uh, symbiotic type of arrangement that, that works out very well. Uh, whereas with uh, certain uh, of the uh, exotics, you you just don't have that. You're not going to have that. You talked earlier about uh, this new design on Highway 41 being not no maintenance, but low maintenance. It will be low maintenance. Um, <clears throat> we'll be putting, uh, doing, doing the planting this weekend. And once we've done that, uh, we as in Keep Evansville Beautiful, we will we'll steward the area for at least the first two years very carefully. We will make sure that, uh, that the plants thrive, that they fill in, that they, they grow, they get it well established. And the first four months are going to be critical. And then beyond that, uh, we'll be monitoring it. Uh, we'll be looking at, uh, you know, the normal precipitation and so forth. But um, And so, that's, that's the same if you were to put these plants at your in your home garden. You'd find that after establishment, they're just essentially, less to do. Uh, and when we say no maintenance, um, you, you'll have to do some things. But, but the good news is the, the survivability and the sustainability, uh, you know, they, they'll reseed and so forth. And they will grow because they're well suited for, for, uh, for the purpose uh, and, and where we're planting them. Yes, I think when you plant natives, you find after that establishment, establishment period of a few years uh, that the plants are very uh, much on their own in terms of natural rainfall for water uh, so they don't need as much irrigation and they're not as uh, dependent upon chemicals and fertilizers uh, for growth so you you end up doing a lot less in terms of maintenance in the lawn or in your garden if you use native plants. Talk about lawns I know you're putting in something called um is it buffalo grass? Yes, buffalo grass is a native uh, American uh, prairie grass. It's very short. It only gets about six inches tall, um, but it has roots up to five or six feet deep, which is very unlike the fescue turfs that we use that are, are, um, are non-native. 
which have roots only a few inches. Now, the difference there is that buffalo grass can go look for water with those deep roots when uh, our other lawns are drying up. We have a demonstration area of buffalo grass at Mesker Park Zoo and Botanic Garden, and last year during our drought and our uh, 20 days over 100 degrees, the buffalo grass received no additional water and stayed green and grew uh, and required no mowing because it's so short. So can you seed with this if you have an existing lawn? Could you just sprinkle this in, or do you need to pull out your old lawn? And yeah. It in? is. a. It, mm-hmm. You would be renovating uh, all of your lawn if you wanted to convert it to buffalo grass. It's available through mail-order nurseries as plugs, which is probably the quickest way to establish it. Uh, certainly you can seed it, which may require a little more management, weed management uh, in, in establishing it. But I would recommend for the interested person uh, who has a sunny lawn that they want to convert that they uh, maybe go the plug route and phase it in over a period of a few years. Yeah, there's something else too that, to mention though because uh, we'll, we'll see because once we do our planting with the uh, plugs that we're going to be working with this weekend, um, uh, we'll be uh, actually the state of Indiana will be coming and it'll be actually drilling seed uh, around the perimeter of what we plant on that first median and then the next two medians, uh, INDOT will come in, and they'll actually uh, they'll, they'll put seed in uh, by virtue of a drill and so forth, you know, basically in, injecting the seed into the soil. So they'll actually be doing direct seeding, and we'll see uh, how well that establishes and so forth. So we'll be doing, you know, we'll have some plugs that'll be in where we're working, but then we'll see what the uh, results are in the next two medians. And, and that, that is to follow very quickly after we're done with uh, our work on that, uh, that first area. Well, the time's gone fast. We're just about out of time here. But um, I did want to just very briefly ask you where to buy natives. You've mentioned asking your landscaper. You've mentioned doing uh, mail order. Yes. I Well, there are a lot of different sources for native plants. Locally, uh, there are some great plant sales coming up this spring. The Master Gardeners and the zoo are having their plant sales and have nice natives. Um, your local, locally owned garden center is usually the good place to ask for native plants. Um, so uh, that's another good resource for you. And then, of course, if you go to uh, mail order sources, uh, you know, with um, internet gardening, uh, our options have widened considerably. So they are something that you can find. And do check out the Indiana Native Plant and Wildflower Society website for some recommendations about plants to use. And that's inpaws.org, I-N-P-A-W-S.org. Paul Bousman is from Mesker Park Zoo and Botanic Gardens. Mike McGarra from Keep Evansville Beautiful. Uh, both are master gardeners and members of the Indiana Native Plant and Wildflower Society. Thank you both for your time. Thank, Thank you. you. You're listening to The Trend. I'm Micah Schweitzer. And I'm Tony Voss. In the B segment this week, Justin Williams returns for a new edition of Tech Talk, and our WNIN tech expert recently got his hands on the newest offering from a former giant in the smartphone world, BlackBerry. Yeah, so BlackBerry has had a rough couple of years, especially ever since the iPhone was released, because... BlackBerry was kind of the darling of the early age of smartphones. Like you would see anybody with a suit and tie with a BlackBerry on their hip and they would just rave about how much they loved the uh, keyboard on it and how it made them very much so much more connected because of the awesome email client, uh, teens like BBM. Uh, The problem was once the iPhone came out, BlackBerry couldn't keep up. And instead of kind of just wiping the slate clean and starting over, they tried to adapt their existing system to work in this modern age of smartphones and people just balked at it. They 
wanted iPhones. They wanted Galaxy S3s. They didn't want a BlackBerry. A CEO transition later and a lot of layoffs later, BlackBerry's back and they've got the new device called the Z10, which is running a completely new version of the BlackBerry operating system that they built from scratch. They took an old, uh, they bought a company a couple of years ago and took the core of that and made that the new BlackBerry OS. And it's very, it's a modern OS. It's a really nice OS at the core. It's really gesture-based. So if you want to, for instance, go to the BlackBerry hub that has all your notifications from BBM or your apps like Facebook or Twitter, you swipe up and to the right and it'll show you that. If you want to close out an app, you just swipe up again and that'll take you to your home screen. If you want to slow options, you swipe down. So it's very modern in terms of like the interactions inside of it. Uh, the apps look very modern. It doesn't look like a BlackBerry from two years ago. It looks like a BlackBerry of 2013. Uh, there's some really cool features inside of it. Now you say all that and you have a uh, review version of the phone but you didn't seem really quite as hot on it as the whole new shiny features thing would suggest. There's cool features in it. Like, the, for instance, there is uh, the keyboard on it I really like because it has an auto-predictive keyboard where as you type, it'll show little predictions of what it thinks the word is that you're typing. And if it is the one you want, you just swipe up with your thumb and it'll go in the text field. That's really cool. Uh, they've got a feature in there for the camera where you can shoot a photo and instead of just shooting a single off photo, it will shoot about four seconds of video and then you can thumb through each of those frames to find the perfect shot where everyone's eyes are open and they're smiling really bright and make that the photo. Those are really cool features. The problem that I ran into with the BlackBerry is a lot like the problems I've run into with Windows Phone's devices, except on a little bit worse level in that. Their app ecosystem is atrocious. There is not nearly enough good content in there to justify me wanting to use the device. So I need a Facebook app. That's there. I need a Twitter app. That's there. Uh, there was a LinkedIn app that was built in. Uh, but when you start to go to things like a decent notes app, I couldn't find one of those. A uh, decent to-do app. There wasn't really a good one of those that stood out in the app store. Uh, video apps for things like Vine are not there. There's no Instagram. So there's... So many of these core apps that I use on an Android or an iPhone that I couldn't find on the BlackBerry. And I think that's going to be the thing that would frustrate most people as they tried to transition to this thing is once you buy the phone, that gets you the base of what you want. It's what you can then do with it over the next two years of that contract through the app store that really makes the phone shine. And I can't really see the BlackBerry ecosystem improving in the next two years to justify spending the money now to actually get the thing because... It's a chicken and egg problem. Developers aren't building quality apps for the device because no one has actually bought the device yet because it's so new. But at the same time, developers don't want to build things because there's no users. So how does BlackBerry get out of that uh, situation? I'm not so sure. BlackBerry is sort of, I'm going to say, quote unquote, cheating in that they did something that's kind of clever in that they... They ported the Android tools that you can run an Android app on to BlackBerry so that it's relatively easy for Android developers to port their apps to BlackBerry. The problem with this is that while it does increase the number of apps that are available for the BlackBerry, those apps aren't enjoyable to use whatsoever. Like it's really a really bad experience to use them. And I, I tried to use them just to see what it was like and no. If you're not building a native app for the BlackBerry, it's not worth your time in using it because it's just, it's not something that's designed to use on the device. It's something that's just been ported over so that BlackBerry can count up their numbers. And that's a really crummy experience for the user. 
has BlackBerry sort of missed the boat here because they were sort of at the forefront of the whole smartphone idea and then iPhone comes along and eats their lunch. They're trying to come back and they're innovating in some nice ways for smartphones, but I mean, they made their name as sort of a phone for business people. And by now, I would imagine that most of these business people have moved on from the BlackBerry. They have whatever phone their, you know, their business prefers. Are they really going to go running back to a BlackBerry now? I don't think so. I think everyone has made their decision and they've switched. I think people that are still using Blackberries are the types of people that have two devices. So they'll have like their personal device, which is their iPhone that they connect with their, their family. But then the BlackBerry is issued by the corporate IT department, and that's what they use for all their business stuff. BlackBerry's trying to court that consumer market. Like there's a decent video app and there's a music app on there. They hired Alicia Keys as like their VP of social or whatever to uh, try to like get the word out about BlackBerry being cool and being cutting edge for multimedia and creation and collaboration. But People have already moved on from this. They're not doing nearly enough to wow people to get them to come back. Like, I haven't heard anyone talk about the BlackBerry outside of the nerd circle saying, oh, it's cool that they got that out. Uh, I played with it for a little bit at an AT&T store, but no, I'm not going to use it. People are talking about the GS4. They're going to. They're talking about the rumored iPhone 5S. The BlackBerry is an afterthought, and that's... That's a bummer for BlackBerry. They're probably going to end up selling the company for assets or whatever, or they'll just go down in a sinking ship. But I'd like to be wrong, but I don't think that there's any way they're coming back from this. Justin Williams is our tech expert at The Trend, and his columns can be read in the Evansville Courier and Press. And this review will be part of the podcast of The Trend, going up after the show at WNIN.org. I'm Tony Voss. And I'm Micah Schweitzer. Dramatic events in Boston a week ago preempted The Trend's Friday broadcast, and so we're re-airing this next interview from last week's show. More than a fifth of Americans are now unaffiliated with a religion. That's the highest number in recent history, and it's particularly those under the age of 30 who are leaving or perhaps even never joining the faith. One reason is a perception that the church is anti-science. Henderson's First United Methodist Church is exploring the relationship between science and religion with noted astronomer Dr. Owen Gingrich. He's a former research professor of astronomy and the history of science at Harvard and a senior astronomer emeritus at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. He even has an asteroid named in his honor, and he joins us from his home in Massachusetts. Dr. Gingrich, welcome to The Trend. I'm glad that we can get connected at the speed of light, which I think <laughs> is what it takes these electrical impulses to put us in the same room. Exactly. And speaking of the room here in the studio, the senior pastor of First United Methodist Church in Henderson, Dr. James Wofford, welcome. Thank you. It's and let be me with begin with you. Uh, I know that it's, it's a broad brush to paint the Christian church as a monolithic organization, but is the church anti-science? Well, it shouldn't be, and I don't like to think that it is. Uh, certainly the scriptures, uh, what we found our, our faith on, uh, aren't anti-science. And um, I think, uh, as Dr. Gingrich is the expert on uh, throughout history, many of the great scientists have been people of faith. 
And you yourself, Dr. Gingrich, are a person of faith. You're a, uh, a Mennonite. Uh, what's that like to be uh, working within the scientific academy as someone uh, with faith? Is, is the scientific academy anti-religion? Well, there are certainly a few people who are very articulate uh, atheists these days. Uh, and uh, uh, there are a lot of people who you just don't know about. You go down the corridors of uh, the observatory, and you don't say, good morning, do you believe in God today? That's uh, just not a typical subject. And so you find out by surprise every once in a while that uh, somebody is singing in a church choir or uh involved in some way you had no clue about. But I have found among uh, famous unbelievers like Carl Sagan and Stephen Jay Gould uh, that they knew where I stood and they were respectful of it. So I never got any ad hominem remarks from them. How do science and faith relate for you? I know you've said that science doesn't prove God, but it's compatible with God. Yes, I would uh, uh, think very strongly that that's the case. That is to say, it's very difficult to take scientific things and say, this now proves the existence of God. That's uh, uh, not something I would try to sell. So what is the role uh, of science and what is the role of religion in, in creating a picture of the world that we live in? And I guess in your case, certainly beyond the world we live in, the cosmos. It's very different now than it would have been uh, 500 years ago when there was a very closed universe envisioned by everybody with a sphere beyond the stars and planets, which was the... Uh, domain of of God, the angels, and the blessed. That's all disappeared, of course, and we have to think of these things in a new light because of what science and exploration have brought to us. For example, in a way you don't think about nowadays, uh, when uh, Columbus and the other early explorers came to the New World, and found there were people in it, it was a great puzzle. Is it possible that the Indians didn't have souls? That was a serious discussion in the early 16th century. So there have been changes forced upon us in our thinking about these things as a result of the new parts of the universe that are being discovered, beginning with the new world back in the 1492 and beyond. Well, and as you point out, it used to be the case that, that we thought of God as, as inhabiting a very specific place, you know, straight up. Uh, and as we now know, the universe goes on and on for, you know, it seems like a, a further distance uh, with every discovery. Are we running out of places to put God, or is it changing how we conceive of God when we can't put God in a specific physical location? I think we have to uh, uh, expand our view of what God is and where God is. He is, and I shouldn't use he, but it seems odd to use it. Uh, there is 
something extraordinarily powerful and unknowable about God. It is like the puppy trying to understand the mind of Sir Isaac Newton. There's a great gulf between us and the deity, and that is where the role of uh, an in-between, a person to show us something about how God could relate to us as human beings. Because God must do something beyond his grand powers of making a universe if he wants to relate to us. You're talking about Jesus? Of course. You caught on real fast. (laughs) (laughs) Let me turn to you, Dr. Wofford. How much do you think um, the average churchgoer, in your experience, worries about the relationship between science and faith and and what science would, you know, if we if we get into the details of it, how science forces us to maybe change our conceptions of God, as we're talking about with with the physical location of God or, or what Dr. Gingrich is saying about expanding our definition or understanding of God. I think the average church person has a lot of questions along those lines, much more so than sometimes we preacher types uh, give credence to. Uh, We like to focus um, so much on the spiritual realm that we tend to miss some of the uh, basic questions that people are wrestling with that relate to the the physical universe as it relates to their uh, spiritual understandings. And uh, uh, I've, I've had people of all ages ask me questions that I wouldn't have thought of, uh, but they, they are wondering about um, those kind of details. So it's not just young people, as I mentioned in the introduction to the show. No, not at all. In fact, uh, I've discovered uh, sometimes it's our uh, older adults who are dealing with end-of-life issues. Where am I going? Uh, so when you're talking about where where is God and and that type of thing, those are questions that people wonder about. What's interesting is that the world we live in is so technological and and therefore so infused with science that we almost take it for granted sometimes, and yet we'll get stuck on certain parts of science. You know, evolution is probably the obvious one to point to where for some reason, even though evolutionary biology influences all kinds of medicine that we use and that we don't think about in those terms, uh, we do get hung up on the theory of evolution and what it means about our own origin as humans and therefore our relationship with God. Do you, do you see that one cropping up? Oh, certainly. Uh, that's, a, that's a hot button topic how, for a lot of folks. How do you answer it? Well, I think there, you know, it's one of those things that people have to wrestle with. Um, and uh, I personally see that the, the scriptures uh, are such that it gives a lot of room for, for dialogue and uh, exploration. Unfortunately, sometimes we get our preconceived notions of how things uh, should be or ought to be, and uh, it precludes the, the discussion. And then, of course, science has, has uh, uh, the perspective of, of the uh, development of, of life and you know how does that how does that work in with uh, the story of creation? And I th- it makes for some very interesting uh, conversations and dialogue. And and uh, you know what does it mean to be human in the end? I think that's the real issue that that uh, people are, are 
looking to get at is, is, is what does it mean to be a human being? And uh, I think that's where the creation stories eventually point us towards, and not so much the details of how did that exactly happen, but uh, what happened for, for humanity to actually be born? Uh, what is it that makes us human beings? Dr. Owen Gingrich, I know you're a, uh, an expert on Copernicus, and you brought up the world of 500 years ago. And I guess around the time of Copernicus, this was highly controversial. Um, that's an understatement. It was heretical to say that the world revolved around the sun rather than the other way around. Uh, today, a person of faith probably has no issue with the fact that the earth revolves around the sun. Um, do you think that, that we'll eventually look back on evolution in a similar way and say, well, now it poses no problem to faith, but, you know, back then in the uh, 20th and 21st centuries, it did? That's an interesting question, because the polls are showing that a majority of Americans do not believe in evolution, and I'm not exactly sure what it is that, that they don't believe in, uh, because obviously... Our understanding of the age of the world, uh, the great fossil record, and so on, uh, which isn't in itself evolution, but it is the background uh, on which the evolutionary picture is painted. I have in my hands the uh, table of contents of a book that I'm working on, on evolution and the wonder of life. It's called The Divine Handiwork, which is a quotation from Copernicus, who said, so vast without any question is the divine handiwork of the Almighty Creator. And it's interesting to look down here through the chapter titles, and the very last one is On Becoming Human, which is one of the important sticking points. And I guess it's a sticking point because the Bible, the Genesis account, would suggest that somehow humans are set apart from the animal world, uh, and and what evolution does is, is show uh, distinct interconnection between all species. I think both of these things are true. There is something uniquely different about what human beings can do, but certainly they biological record shows that we're very tightly linked to the animal kingdom. We're talking with astronomer Dr. Owen Gingrich and also Dr. James Wofford from First Methodist Church in Henderson. We'll be back with more after a break. You're listening to The Trend. Support for WNIN comes from Romaine Cross Point Buick GMC Cadillac Subaru, where you get the Romaine value promise. Located at I-164 and Deloitte or online at myromaine.com.
This is The Trend. I'm Micah Schweitzer. We're talking with Harvard Professor Emeritus Dr. Owen Gingrich and First United Methodist Church Senior Pastor Dr. James Wofford. And uh, coming back to what we were talking about with with the issue of evolution and faith, um, the response, uh, or one response at any rate, is this idea of creationism or perhaps intelligent design. And one critique that I've come across is that what happens is that God gets relegated to the unknown. You have sort of a God of the gaps. Is that how you see it, Dr. Gingrich? It seems to me that the role of God in evolution is quite ambiguous. On the one side, the results of evolution are absolutely staggering and quite extraordinary. And one can see that uh, with a random process of uh, selection of the, from the various mutations, uh, it will, given enough time, work out to make something more and more complicated. But there's something that is somewhat unspecified by this, and that is the mutations. One can't predict them, but in the end, you get enough of them to work out to this incredible result. Is it possible that the mutations are divinely inspired? There's no way to prove that that's not the case, and there's no way to prove that it is the case. So what we have to look at is what makes a coherent system of beliefs. Not proofs, but persuasion. And to me, it makes a lot more sense to suppose that there is a divine order and a divine purpose. I always say that I'm just psychologically incapable of believing in a purposeless universe. So there is meaning behind all the, what seems like, randomness in the end. That's what I would believe because it makes more sense to me. And I assume, Dr. Wofford, that's where you come from as well? A lot of times we get hung up in this, you know, proving or disproving. And the perspective of science is you never prove anything. Um, or, and in the end, I guess the, the opposite would, would be somewhat true too. But And so I don't think that... Uh, we can come to a point of saying that that you know science has, has proven that that God doesn't exist or that God can't be a, pro, a part of the process. But like uh, Dr. Gingrich said, after a while you look at the evidence, and faith it does take you to a place where science can't go, and that is to make uh, some conclusions upon which to, to base your your life and your thoughts and beliefs. I guess if you can prove it, it's not faith anymore. Well, I don't, uh, you know, a lot of times we think that faith is blind, and I don't, I've never really had that perspective. For me, faith is based upon what we know and learn, and then from what that information gives us, then we can project certain things that we don't always see. Uh, but, we, but we know that they're true based off of what we have discovered about God or uh, about the way uh, the world works. When you talk about, uh, earlier we talked about you and your relationship to evolution and, and your parishioners, um, I guess that assumes that you're not taking the Bible 
literally word for word. Well, that's a <laughs> that's a that, that's a uh, a good question. I think a lot of times we have a, come to the point where we don't go deep enough in the scriptures, or we don't go deep enough in science. Uh, certainly, there's metaphorical dimensions to the scriptures, and uh, at the same time, I think there's more truth there that we, if we understand the, uh, if we understand the the background, that that there is truth there. So when we start talking about the word literal, uh, I think there is literal truth uh, that's there. Um, it, it's it, how we understand it and, and perceive it and, and uh, likewise apply it. Dr. Gingrich, I guess it would seem when we talk about what, what some people are calling a crisis of faith that we're facing at this moment in history uh, in our culture, um, that's because science is making us question theology and our understanding of God. Do you think that theology should make us question science? That's a little hard to say in our present context, where science is such an important part of our understanding uh, the world about us. But at the same time, uh, the uh, religious aspects are also a very important part of uh, the American scene, the world scene, because it deals with other issues. And there is always a certain overlap where there is a certain amount of, of friction and a certain amount of, of reaffirmation of faith. So you have to read these signs very carefully and see how you're going to fit the two rather disparate uh, areas together. But we have to think that in terms of religious ideas, it's not something fixed, monolithic, and unchanging. There are prophets among us still who can see the spiritual meaning of things and the ethical issues, many of which come about because of what science and technology is doing. So it's an ongoing process, and I think you just have to consider that the early parts of Genesis don't contain scientific secrets. As Galileo said, the Bible teaches how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. We have found that those early parts of the Scripture are written from a... Uh, different cosmology, uh, a simpler kind of understanding, and we know that it is inadequate for us today. So to try to bend things around to make Genesis 1 be a literal book about the order in which things were made in a six-day period, uh, that has to be understood as a great payon to God's creativity, but not a scientific textbook. So are science and religion, as it's often portrayed in the media, are they at odds? Is there, is there a conflict between them? There are some people out there who would love to make it into a conflict, uh, and I just don't see it that way. Uh, so uh, 
what do I say about the uh, so-called new atheists? Uh, some of them I've met, and in some ways I respect, but I cannot agree with uh, their particular spin on it. What would you say, Dr. Wofford? Conflict between science and religion? Well, there certainly are those that are trying to make a, a conflict there. Um, it, you know, I was watching a program about uh, two years ago with a with a very notable scientist that the media likes to uh, put out there, and and he claimed that he had eliminated a need for God with uh, with the, his mathematics as it relates to the uh, uh, the Big Bang and the, uh, the beginning of the of the universe. Um, you know, I think just philosophically, once again, if, if as a scientist uh, to say I've proven or disproven is almost disingenuous uh, because it, all you do is you put out the information and, and then you have to draw your own conclusions. New data is always coming in. All new data is always coming in. And, and, and the reason I said that, you know, the Bible has some, you know, literal truth in it. For example, the very first phrase is in the beginning. Well, it wasn't all that long ago that the vast majority of scientists didn't think that there had been a beginning to the universe. And it wasn't until the late 50s, early 60s that the whole concept of the Big Bang came forward. And lo and behold, it was true all along that there was a beginning. And uh, and so they had to adapt the way they uh, were viewing the universe. And, um, and in a sense, it kind of caught up to the Bible at that point. Um, and, but there are always those who, who want to try to prove or disprove uh, the existence of God, it seems like. Dr. Gingrich earlier said something about uh, not fully understanding why people wrestle so much with evolution. What's the church's role? Uh, and, and I'm sure you have an opinion on this because you're bringing Dr. Gingrich in to speak at, right. at your church. Uh, what's the church's role in helping people through uh, this confusion? I think the the church has a huge role because ultimately uh, we're about exploring truth, and and uh, you know Jesus came and said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." So this whole concept of truth is very important to to religion, uh, to the Christian faith, and as a result, we need to be dialoguing with uh, the way people are perceiving truth, uh, uh, responding to it uh, at times, uh, perhaps. Uh, you know, our perspective maybe does shift a little bit. I'd, I'm one of those who, th who think that a lot of times our doctrine isn't wrong, but maybe how we perceive th that doctrine and how it, it interacts with the world around us, uh, it, it gains new nuances. And so uh, we need to struggle with those issues and talk about them and, and uh, help people process them. Because if we don't do that, then they're out, they feel like they're out there on their own kind of struggling. You know, where is, where is the, uh, the church on these uh, topics? And Dr. Gingrich, what about the role of scientists in uh, teaching the public, perhaps better, to understand uh, the science that's out there and, and you know, help have a, a better grasp of it? Well, that's partly why I'm devoting a lot of my time uh, to working on uh, this book on evolution, uh, because I feel that a lot of Christians are know there's a controversy, have no idea why, uh, are confused about it in general. I'd like to help uh, chart a path, a historical path through this, uh, 
to help people understand what is at stake, and uh, both from the uh, Christian viewpoint or a theistic viewpoint that would include uh, a Jewish and a Muslim audience as well, uh, but uh, uh, also what the insights are from science and uh, uh, how it gives us a way to understand the world and how over billions of years the world has been changing. And I know as a historian you'd like to look back, but if I can just ask you to look forward, when do you think we will uh, maybe move on to the point where this is no longer a controversy, where we're not having uh, uh, court battles about teaching evolution in schools? Ah, you're asking me to peer into a crystal ball, (laughs) which is a little bit murky. I'm afraid uh, uh, I could hardly tell you how how soon that will end. I think that uh, there is the possibility that a majority of people in this country will come to understand uh, what is at stake and what is not at stake, uh, and uh, there will be a greater appreciation of the evolutionary history of the world. But I don't think the controversy will ever entirely disappear. After all, there are even today geocentrists who take it seriously that the Earth doesn't move. Hmm. (laughs) Well, Dr. Owen Gingrich, uh, I look forward to your forthcoming book, and uh, thank you so much for your time today. Surely. Dr. Owen Gingrich is a research professor emeritus of astronomy and the history of science at Harvard. He's also a senior astronomer emeritus at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. And we've also been talking with Dr. James Wofford. He's the senior pastor of First United Methodist Church. And thank you so much for your time. And thank you, Micah. The Trend is a production of WNIN in collaboration with the Evansville Courier and Press. I'm Micah Schweitzer. We'll talk next week. This is WNIN-FM, Evansville, Henderson, and Owensboro.